made Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes And. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of the Yes And Cafe. Omar Ali is normally our co-host on this podcast, but today he joins us for the first time as our guest. And Matt Bryant, who is normally behind the scenes as our creative director, editor, friend, and colleague extraordinaire, joins us as co-host. Welcome, Matt and Omar. Thank you. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Omar Ali is Dean of the Lloyd International Honors College at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, a graduate of the London School of Economics and Political Science. He conducted fieldwork in West Africa with anthropologist Maxwell Awusu before receiving his PhD in history from Columbia University in 2003 under the direction of Eric Foner. Named the Carnegie Foundation North Carolina Professor of the Year in 2015, Dean Ali is an accomplished scholar, author, and dedicated educator. He is highly unusual in that he teaches two classes per semester. I know this because I co-teach with him. While still serving in the role of a dean, as if that isn't enough, Professor Ali is an unusually effective community organizer whose efforts in that area go back to the early 1990s when he played an important role in Lenora Falani's presidential campaign. Dr. Falani was the first African-American and female presidential candidate to get to the ballot in all 50 states. She ran as an independent. So Matt and I wanted to interview Professor Ali, who's also our friend Omar, as I will refer to him for the rest of this podcast, today because we personally benefit so much from his perspective, which is professionally outside the box. And we wanted to hear his thoughts about the recent presidential election and get his advice for navigating what feel like precarious times. So welcome to the show, Omar. Thank you. This is great. Omar, before I get to my first question, I would just like to say quickly thanks to both of you for allowing me this chance to co-host an episode. It's really cool to be on this side of the mic and be part of the conversation. So thanks for that. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's an honor to have you. Omar, we'd like to dive right in and discuss the topic of the recent U.S. presidential election, and in particular, the significant historical event of electing Kamala Harris as the first female vice president, first black female vice president for the U.S. And we'd like to hear from you about how this event resonates with you and your thinking and your work, and how that connects to your past experience working on the Fulani campaign. I think it's very exciting for the nation, for the world to have a vice president elect who is Black and South Asian. So Jamaican on one side and South Asian on the other, India. And it signals new possibilities. So Dr. Fulani, who was the first woman and the first African-American to get on the ballot in all 50 states in 1988, really was a pioneer in this. Other African-Americans and other women had attempted to get on the ballot in all 50 states, had not. Sometimes people think about, you know, Shirley Chisholm's run in the early 70s, but she actually did not get the nomination of the Democratic Party, was not on the ballot in all 50 states, but was clearly a very important figure in opening up the space of the presidency to 
basically people of color and women. And so when Falani ran, what's interesting is that, you know, she was asked, was it harder being a woman or being African-American running for president? And she ran as an independent. And her response was actually neither. It was being an independent that was most challenging. That goes against a lot of how people think about these things, because I think that we think of race and gender as certainly more important than any political ideology in terms of the legacy of slavery and and Jim Crow and institutionalized forms of racism and sexism in American history. And people don't think of independence in that case, sort of like, well, what's that about? But turns out in the law, independents are essentially second-class citizens. Uh, That is, the Democratic and Republican parties work overtime together to keep essentially themselves in power. And while they fight like cats and dogs in public, when it comes down to it, they've created laws that basically disenfranchise tens of millions of people. Right now, 42% of Americans self-identify as independent. So her getting on the ballot in all 50 states in 1980 was really, really important. And I worked on her 1992 presidential campaign. And it was that same year that Ross Perot came on the scene and was able to use his own personal wealth, the $70 million, to promote his candidacy. And it turned out that 20 million people voted for the person. And so that put independent politics on the map, if you will. Now, the fact is that Kamala Harris ran as a Democrat, but she also is symbolic of the sort of new possibilities. And so it signals to young people, old people, all people that women, that people of color can achieve this high position, building on President Obama's historic election in 2008. It's sort of a a push, I think, in a positive direction because we've had a president in Donald Trump that has really pulled things back in terms of seeing new possibilities in this nation. So it's very exciting, I think, for all Americans to have a woman and a black woman as vice president-elect. Following up on what you were just saying, speaking about Trump's pulling things back or setting us back as a country in terms of these issues of xenophobia and white supremacy, it's, I think, hard for a lot of us to recognize just how close the election was and know that so many of our friends and neighbors were enthusiastically supporting his reelection, even given that he had taken those stances throughout his time as president and his campaigns. How can we think about this going forward? I think that the reason why Trump got in in the first place is because people were very frustrated at the political establishment and he was actually seen as an outsider and he doesn't comport like a regular politician. That was very appealing to people. So people saw past his xenophobia, racism, sexism, misogyny, his anti-poor stance, all the things that he embodies, essentially. They saw him as sort of a blunt tool that they could sort of stick it to the system. And so four years ago, he actually got a four-point edge among non-aligned voters. In 2008, actually, Barack Obama won independence or non-aligned voters by eight points. But this time, there was a 14-point margin of victory and in terms of independence going for Biden-Harris. And so independents have actually sort of gone the ways that they feel could help move the country forward. And now everybody will say that, I guess, right? Partisans will say that and also independents will say that. But I think that what you see is independents playing this role of sort of trying to 
push things. So in, in 2008, having President Obama as the first African-American was really extraordinary. And then Trump, in some ways, was an expression of sort of a feeling of frustration. And then you have this 14-point margin sort of in response to Trump's actual policies and practices. So I think of it in the long durée, I see it sort of, you have to kind of pan out and see that, yeah, the same nation that elects President Obama elects Trump. And there's a, an adjustment now going on. But I think that to speak to the sort of how close the election was, I mean, really, really close, right? National. I think that this is who America is. This is, I think that if, you, if you're in certain parts of the country, like in New York or in California, you get a different view. And even within California, I mean, Orange County is a very conservative county compared to other counties. So I think that we're moving forward as a nation in terms of opening up possibilities. I made a statement before the election results came in that was, whatever happens if Trump gets reelected, it's part of a much longer process. And I think the country culturally has been moving in a direction towards openness. And so that's how I see it. I'm an optimist in this way. It seems that with each successive presidential election cycle, the nation has become increasingly divisive, increasingly divided, and with this one being no exception, especially in an era of social media and memes and 24-7 news cycles, the way in which we're constantly bombarded with sound bites and labels and misinformation and all kinds of things that influence people in the way that they identify and group themselves together and take on a very entrenched us versus them mentality. I'm wondering if you could talk about how we might be able to move beyond that divisiveness. I mean, I think that that's the most important question, if you will, at this moment in dealing ultimately with issues of intractable forms of poverty and racism in America. Because unless we're able to bring more people together, we're not going to be able to tackle these extraordinary problems in the country and in the world. And so I think that it's both structural, but it's also very cultural in the sense that so there's policies you could put into place. So, you know, Trump's administration rolled back sort of through executive orders, you know, having diversity trainings and what have you. I think diversity trainings are better than not, but I think a lot of it is received as blaming. And I think the culture around these things has done a disservice to those people who are trying to do that kind of work on, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. So because of actually what you're saying, the sort of us versus them kind of posture and, and way of comporting. So I think that we can put into place, I'm hoping, policies that project a kind of an inextricable connectedness between Americans. And that's both in how we talk about things, but also in policy and budgetary decisions by allocating more money to poor communities and to projects and programs that work. And I think that we do that personally in the spaces that we are in by looking for the best in others to look for why people are saying what they're saying and asking questions and listening. And I'm not saying that this is going to necessarily change things in and of itself, but can we begin to create more of a culture that is less divisive? 
the American people are less divided than if we just look at social media. There's very interesting studies showing that there's been a shift among people when responding to the question, would you want your son or daughter to marry somebody of a different political ideology? And more and more people are willing to do that if you ask the second question, which is that, and you don't have to talk about politics. Because most people want to just connect as humans. And we've been organized culturally in this country to think about things in partisan ways and ideological ways. And the political scientists and pollsters continue to reinforce that, sort of that the only way to do politics is through parties and through an overarching ideology. But what about just human activity? What about people creating things together? So to answer your question, I think that if we have leadership that can promote a less partisan-driven, less ideologically-driven set of policies and rhetoric, I think that will help. And then what we can do individually is to look for why people are saying what they're saying. And in the looking, you're building something with people. It's not just finding out the information of why they believe X, Y, or Z. It's the listening in order to be, as Alan Alda says, and Naja, you know, shared this with me. I think he said in one of his books, you know, and he talked about it when he came to campus, looking to be open to being transformed. And so that's a posture issue. And I think we have to lead by example. It's hard. I really love what you are talking about in terms of being open. And it's something that I've thought about some lately is that the party system in a way keeps us from being open, whether we're connecting with people who think similarly to us or who we think think similarly to us or who have different views than us. Because if we're not open to being changed by conversation, we're shutting down the possibility of growing through having the conversation. Even if we're talking with someone who might have similar views to us, they're probably new perspectives we can gain from that. And so this sort of digging in as there's a right and a left (laughs) and the binary is actually preventing development for everyone. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think it's these binaries that keep us divided in the same way that I've said before that identity is a slippery slope. I identify as both American, South Asian, Latinx. And I know that those categories are socially constructed categories that can often make other people feel excluded. So it's how we use these things and how the categories that we've created are used in ways that enforce or reinforce division. And so just the idea of left and right, I mean, people are much more contradictory and nuanced than left or right categories. Even though I identify myself also as a progressive, I can understand why on some issues people see things differently and I can be sympathetic to that. So I think that what we are trapped in, and if you'll forgive me for a moment to go back in back in time, is this idea that goes back to actually Aristotle and the idea of the law of the excluded middle, which is something that philosophers have used to characterize the concept of A or not A. That is, things can be are either A or not A. But what it leaves out is the possibility of things that are emerging, that are becoming. And I think that if we all ask ourselves and we look at our own lives individually or just our families or community, we see that we've changed over time. And I think that we need to give ourselves the space and the grace to see ourselves as in flux. We don't want to be fixed. I don't think that that's a good thing to be fixed. I don't think that people should give up their principles, but it's how those are exercised and how we change the practice of those principles perhaps over time. 
to be inclusive of others, I think, requires being open and being flexible. These are traditions that are part of many, many cultures that are simultaneous to and predate the Western epistemologically biased ways in which we comport, which is very much around fixed categories and ordering things and being less attentive to environment and seeing ourselves as individuals as part of communities or even getting rid of the idea of this glorification of the individual, which is very recent to our species development. So you're speaking about development, and I know that you have a very specific definition of development and are a great supporter of development. And I just wondered, what does development mean to you? And how do you see development as linked to the topic of the day, which is politics? So I think that definitions are useful just to create conversations with and to kind of get us started. So I understand development along the lines of what I've learned from my colleagues in the All-Stars and Eastside Institute up in New York and the work of Holtzman and Newman and Filani and others, which is that development may be understood as the increased capacity to recognize opportunities and build with them, off of them. It's that increased capacity to see things. And again, I think if we think about ourselves and our own histories, uh, when we were children, we saw certain possibilities, but we began to see more possibilities in some ways as we grew older. And yet also our imagination is shut down in certain ways. It's sort of these countervailing forces at play, right? But I think that the idea of development is this capacity. And I think that we can increase that capacity to grow, to learn, to develop throughout our lives. And this is a part of a a debate within psychology, which is that for many people saw development as limited. I mean, think about like sort of these intelligence tests, right, of the 20th century. And development took place in stages, you know, sort of thinking of like Erickson's work. The work that I've been very much influenced by is but the work of Lev Vygotsky, who was an early Russian psychologist, educator, who saw development as a co-created space in which people could perform ahead of themselves by having somebody who's more developed than you in a certain area of life, let's say language, as relating to you ahead of yourself. So I see this in some ways connected to politics because I think that we have to look for the best in others. The Quakers would say, look for the light in others. And I think by relating to people a little ahead of themselves, it gives them the space to grow into that, is my experience. And it's also radically democratic in the sense that you're giving people the opportunity to give expression to who they want to become. So development and democracy are very much tied together. And my own work as a scholar has been to look at independent Black political movements, not only in the United States, but looking at the global diaspora. I'm looking at political Black political leaders across from India, like Malik Ambar, to parts of Africa. Uh, J.J. Rawlings comes to mind as somebody who recently just passed away in, in Ghana, to Bankos Bioho or Dr. Lenore Fulani here in the Americas. So I, that's my particular interest as a scholar. But part of it is an interest in this issue of people expressing themselves and they do that through activity. I think that people generally want to be seen in some way and heard. And so those are activities when done with others that are developmental, I think. So 
I think it behooves us to support and create democracy because that allows us to, again, engage some of these fundamental issues of poverty, of racism, and all the ways in which people are not allowed to fully develop because of institutional forms of discrimination. Everything you just said to me is the heart of this podcast and the heart of Yes Anding. And I just love the way so many things you just spoke to ties into the theme and the motivation of this podcast and the things that we think about and share and talk about. I just want to note that, that I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I've been a political organizer and a scholar of political history for the better part of like 30 years now. And what's interesting, many people may not realize is that actually I really dislike politics. And I really, it just does not appeal to me. And I say that because I've worked on political campaigns going back to Dr. Filani's, you know, 1992, but even before that, I've approached politics almost as a community organizer. I mean, that's what I do. I'm an organizer of communities, as both of you are, actually. So I think that there's a different way of thinking about politics, which may be helpful, and we started to talk about, but it's to think about politics culturally. There was an early 20th century Italian communist writer and political organizer, Antonio Gramsci, who wrote these prison notebooks, and he brought this concept of cultural hegemony into Marxism. And Marxism, as a 19th century sort of series of writings and practices, really was very shaped by sort of the scientific worldview of mechanical way of understanding societies. This is the rise of sociology during this period of time. And actually, his most brilliant work was actually in his earliest writings, and it's called The German Ideology, where he speaks about the sensuousness of human activity and challenges basically the idea of knowledge production in the ways that we've received it, going back at least to the Greco-Romans, if not earlier, certainly earlier. But what I was thinking about with regards to Gramsci was that he was saying this in response to Marxists basically saying that there's sort of a stages theory of societal development and a mechanical way that if sufficient numbers of people are oppressed, then you know there people will rise up against it. And it's as if like the spirit of history was going to happen on its own when in fact, you know, Marx himself kind of flipped that around the Hegel's idea of the Geist as sort of the guiding historical spirit, that it's human beings that create stuff. And we forget that we are the co-creators of culture and we create it and we then also recreate it. So we're constantly shaped by the institutions in which we're in, but we're also the shapers of those institutions. And so we give that up. Often we become passive in our own development. And as Vygotsky says, development is an active thing that is produced by people. It doesn't just happen to people. It's people co-creating developmental spaces together. I think Gramsci is on to something very important. He was on, and I think a lot of people picked up on it, is this idea of looking at sort of how powerful culture is, that the laws in and of themselves can be sometimes helpful. Like you think about the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 64, 65, very important in helping to dismantle Jim Crow. And yet we're still reeling from sort of the legacy of Jim Crow so many years later because we haven't gone through a therapeutic developmental process as a nation in engaging these issues of racism in America, specifically racism towards black people. What I urge is for us to think more culturally and to think more contextually and to think more environmentally. That is, the spaces and places that we create where there can be possibilities. 
so we don't want to give that up. We don't want to give up our historical agency in today. And I think it's very easy to feel depressed, defeated, etc. People have been, you know, with the election. And then many people were very inspired and elated with Biden and Harris winning the election. Many people were also disheartened who were Trump supporters. But let's not give up our agency throughout the process. I feel like I often really, really benefit from your perspectives because it seems like we can kind of get spun out of control in the midst of the political discussions. And I find what you have to say to be very grounding. And that's really helpful. I don't know if you experienced that, Matt, but it feels very grounding to me. It's like, okay, wait, there's something we can do. Omar, a new edition of your book, In the Balance of Power, Independent Black Politics and Third-Party Movements in the United States, was just published by Ohio University Press. Thinking about your scholarship on political movements and the work you've done to help give independent voters a voice within U.S. politics and within the context of everything we've talked about here today, I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about what is important to consider in being able to identify as independent in the United States. I've frequently heard people who identify as independent describing themselves as being somehow invisible or existing on an invisible island. And I'm wondering if you might address that within what we're talking about here in this conversation. That's super interesting. I think that people who don't identify strongly with the Democratic or Republican parties as isolated. As an organizer of independence for many, many years, I'm constantly trying to bring out the fact that actually the plurality of American voters do self-identify as independent. And it's the pollsters and the political scientists that insist on asking the second question. So in the national polls, national surveys, they'll ask, you know, how do you self-identify as a Democrat, Republican, or unaffiliated or independent? And that's where you get about 42%, between 42 and 44%. But when people are then asked the second question, which is today, if you had to vote, which way would you vote? Then that number significantly goes down. And the reason why it goes significantly down, basically 11% of people who still say that they would go independent is because the choices that are available in a meaningful way are basically Democratic, Republican. And what has happened is that unfortunately, the media continues to talk about things in bipartisan terms. But just to be very clear, there's nothing in the Constitution about political parties. In fact, George Washington, you know, the slave owner that he was, but also the general that he was and one of the founding quote, quote, fathers, said something very important. He said that in his farewell address, he's talked about being weary of the parties, the spirit of the parties, because it could be corrupting to the republic. And he was absolutely right that parties are private organizations. We now think of the Democratic and Republican parties as sort of public, but they're not. They're actually private organizations. And so many people were disheartened when Bernie Sanders lost the nomination last time around because basically Democratic Party bosses use the superdelegate status to basically marginalize him. And he was effectively marginalized again. So there's tensions within these parties. So they're not just homogenous things. There's complexity within them. But the fact is, is that the plurality of Americans don't identify strongly with the vast majority of people that you hear about are the people that are, if you will, on the edges. The most partisan voices are the ones that get on the media. The most partisan voices get sort of pulled up more in social media. So the job is to really create a culture where we're not overdetermined by the sort of bipartisan, which is very different from nonpartisan framework. It's a cultural framework. It's a legal, structural framework. I'll give you one simple example. 
if you want to get on the ballot running for president of the United States, you have to get upwards of 40 times more the number of signatures than if you're a Democrat or Republican. In North Carolina, if you want to get on the ballot for statewide office, you have to get over 100,000 signatures compared to zero if you're the Democratic or Republican nominee. In a host of structural ways, legal ways, the Democrats, Republicans have reinforced their monopoly, their duopoly on the political process. So independents have been made invisible. And I think the work of organizers, and, and I was very honored to have the afterword of my book written by Jacqueline Saylor, who's the president of independentvoting.org and the largest network of independent voters around the country. But I think we're trying to make independents more visible. At what point will they become more visible? I don't know, but we have to keep cultivating that and giving people the language and, if you will, the identity, even though, as you know, I'm, I can also speak against identity. Sometimes identities can be powerful things. I think about Marcus Garvey and sort of bringing out black pride in the early 20th century. And that was, he was focusing on a shared black experience. And I think that was valuable for a time. But that also has its limits, as do all identities, because it can also keep you divided from other people who might be your allies. And independence come from across the ideological spectrum. And I think that's why you see independence break one way for Obama, then another election break for Trump. And now they've broken for the Biden-Harris ticket and have helped to propel the first woman and the first Afro-South Asian Black woman to the vice presidential position. You know, one of the challenges sounds like it's structural, like having laws in place that require signatures for independent candidates to get on the ballot, not for Republican or Democratic candidates. Do you think that's part of moving forward beyond developing the language, beyond developing the identities, also developing policies or developing processes rather than focusing on policies around particular issues? Yeah, I mean, the issue of getting policies changed is a function of the movements that build the support to make those changes possible by those who are elected in office or a few who get elected through those movements. So the civil rights movement uh, was able to build such a large profile on the country that it propelled many people into office who then ultimately supported certain kind of legislation. Uh, every movement, the women's rights movement, the populist movement, the abolitionist movement, has preceded policy changes oftentimes by decades. So Black Lives Matter, the movement, helped to bring in some very important changes. I mean, we've had some more, quote, radical voices and coming out. You see some of the tensions within the Democratic Party, an emboldened left wing within the Democratic Party. So movements are the drivers of change, but not to the exclusion of those who are elected to office. I mean, you think about a person like Adam Clayton Powell Jr. You know, in the 1960s, and he in some ways was a voice of the Black Power movement within the halls of Congress. So it's the interplay between those who are in positions of authority, elected officials, and those outside. And that's how history has changed over time, is that dialectic, if you will. So movements are the critical changers of societal norms and practices. And what I see is a movement among independents that has been in the making for some time. As was mentioned, I've been involved for the last three decades in building an independent political movement in this country, which is nonpartisan, to be very clear. And it goes across the ideological spectrum. So policies change as a result of movement building. How long that will take, I don't know. But I, again, I'm optimistic because I'm seeing cultural changes afoot that are creating new possibilities. 
Amar, I'm thinking about someone listening to this podcast who is a supporter of Trump, and it's been in my mind sort of throughout the podcast, because I feel like you're someone who speaks really well to individuals who identify not necessarily within the normal liberal bias or the liberal bubble that we find in academia. And I just wondered what they would think if, is there a liberal bias assumption that we have in this conversation? And knowing what you were just saying about the importance of independent voters as cutting sort of across the ideological spectrum, it sounds to me like you really are advocating for the idea of giving everyone a voice more so than the idea of advancing a certain ideology. Maybe that's something that would appeal to people across the political spectrum. Absolutely. I think that just as race was created as a way of dividing and conquering poor people against and dividing them against each other across American history in order to control basically labor and power. Ideology has been used in the same way to divide people against each other that actually have much in common. To me, we've been bamboozled, hoodwinked, as Malcolm would say, right, into thinking that there are these great divides between us, when in fact, they're relatively superficial. They're trifling or not important. But the more important thing that is being fellow human being, being a fellow citizen, these things are much more important than ideological differences. Ideological differences are used to divide the American people and maintain power among certain groups of people, specifically, and I would argue, the political parties. Actually, the parties are much more powerful than the corporations when you think about it. Corporations go to elected officials to get their support, and they give oftentimes equally to Democrats and Republicans to ensure that they will follow the policies that will ensure their profitability. So what I say is that let's look for our shared humanity. And I think a lot of people might say, well, that's silly. That's more like, you know, kumbaya stuff. I think that there's a lot to be said about looking for that that shared humanity and not be overdetermined by ideology. We can have our differences. Actually, even the three of us, we work very, very well together in producing this podcast and work on a number of projects together. We have our differences. It doesn't mean that we can't work together, that we can't create together. So can we change how is it that we think about politics towards a more cultural, contextual, environmental perspective and look for the light and look for what we have in common and create stuff together, whether that's a poem or a painting or a sandwich or a policy? It doesn't matter. I'd like to end with sharing a little story about something that happened to a friend of mine and I yesterday during an afternoon cleanup of one of the local lake shorelines. We went out on our kayaks and picked up a lot of garbage and bagged it and put it in rafts and on our kayaks and towed it all back to shore to the dock. And as we were unloading all of the garbage from our boats, a couple of guys next to us were in the process of loading their fishing boat onto the boat trailer. And they saw what we were doing and, and the guys stopped what they were doing, ran over and without blinking an eye, offered their help. One of the gentlemen said, hey, let's give you a hand with that. And they jumped in and the four of us moved all the trash over to where it needed to be collected. And they asked us about what we were doing and they thanked us and said they really appreciate what we were doing to help keep the lake clean and that it benefited everybody. And during this brief conversation, I noticed on the side of their boat that they had Trump stickers all over the boat. 
And I thought to myself, that's really interesting because at no point during this random collaboration between strangers did politics or any discussion of politics come up, and nor did it matter. In that brief moment, two people saw two other people working hard to accomplish a task and get something done, and they decided to just jump in and help. And between the four of us, we got it done. And that was that. They went about their way. We went about ours. We thanked them for the help, and that was it. But it just struck me as being really interesting that even though I noticed the clearly identify, self-identified political affiliation of these guys on their fishing boat, it didn't matter. It didn't need to come up. That has stuck with me since yesterday. I've been thinking about it, and it's been on my mind during this conversation. And I just wanted to bring that up and share it. I'm really glad you shared that, Matt. I think it really connects with what Omar was talking about in terms of the importance of human activity and what we create together as being the focus primarily instead of the politics being the focus. And that moment, what you're creating together is cleaning up a lake together. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great image that you created. I was just thinking about that, how the, the fact is that the vast majority of things, in fact, virtually everything that we do does not require partisan ideological positioning. Fiorello LaGuardia, who was mayor of New York, talked about how picking up the trash was not a Democratic or Republican issue. <laughs> you know, it's trash, it, literally. So in some ways, you're picking up the trash in the natural space, and he's talking about doing it in an urban space. It benefits everybody. I, I really like that story. It's a great way to end. Thanks for being together on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed this, Matt and Omar. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks again so much for the opportunity to uh, step in front of the mic. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Take care, all. Many thanks to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, especially our producer, Matt Bryant, and to co-host Omar Ali, who also composed some of our music. <laughs>